Hello, and welcome to episode 81 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Before we get into this episode, I just want to say that our hearts go out to the people of the Ukraine. I'm acquainted with a couple of med tech companies there, and I sincerely hope all the people at these companies and their families are okay. It is a difficult and heartbreaking situation, and we wish the people of the Ukraine the best as they fight for their freedom. Today's episode is called In the C-Suite with Joseph Makanu, PhD and founder of Verge Health Tech. Let me read you their statement of purpose. Health is the world's greatest wealth. This is why we focus on investing in transformative innovations to make healthcare better, not just for some, but for all. We're the world's first VC fund investing exclusively and globally in impactful healthcare technologies at the earliest stage. This interview is timely because we are talking about funding enterprises that are having an impact on value-based care and utilize artificial intelligence. As you know, these two subject areas are part of an overlapping series of episodes I am releasing now. This is a super interesting interview where we cover a lot of ground from Joseph's career and how he got into impact investing, what is scary about running a fund, examples of a couple of unique products he has invested in, funding leadership, scaling challenges, components of leadership, success, and failures. And we diverge into science fiction healthcare with a brief discussion of Star Trek, The Expanse, and the Book of Boba Fett. Finally, for those of you that see this video, yes, I have a shaved head and puffy eyes. I had a non-invasive procedure called a HIFU thalamectomy. HIFU stands for high-intensity focused ultrasound. More on that in another episode. And oh yes, it seems to have been somewhat successful, so I'm happy. Check the show notes for important links to Joseph and Verge Health Tech. And if you like this podcast, share it with a friend via the share link on your podcast player. Now let's get together with Joseph to learn about how a unique health tech fund is investing in companies that have impact. Joseph, welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. It's really great to have you here. Thanks for taking time. Well, thanks for having me, Ted. Oh, it's a pleasure. And first, let's just start with a, a brief description of what your role is, what you're doing right now, a brief description of your role, and a little bit about um, Verge Health Tech. Yeah, sure. So uh, my, my current role right now is I'm Managing Director of Verge Health Tech Fund. I'm also one of the co-founders of this fund. We're a seed stage global health tech fund, and we invest in technologies that really move the needle for, you know, in unmet needs in healthcare for everyone, not just for those in developed markets. Okay, super. And before we get into like sort of walking through your career, in fact, even before I, I, uh, I ask you, I'm going to ask you to tell a story, but I want to do, I want to tell the listeners that one of the unique things about interviewing Joseph is that many of you know that one of my themes right now is value-based care and also um, artificial intelligence being used as part of a medical device or a medical product service. And this is where Joseph's sweet spot is. And so that's why this interview is going to be so interesting is because we'll dive into both of those areas. But first I'd like Joseph, just to tell us an interesting investment story. Yeah. Uh, so one one interesting one that comes to mind is actually our most recent one. Uh, right now, we have 14 companies in our portfolio. We had originally thought that we were going to have only 13. So this is what I call the accidental investment, where <laughs> 
Um, I was contacted by the Singapore branch uh, of ProColombia, which is an organization looking to promote, uh, to promote Colombian business overseas. And they said, hey, do you want to uh, sit into a, a pitch session? I'm like, all right, I've never actually seen any Colombian startups before. And uh, I was listening to this uh, guy pitch his uh, telemedicine and EMR company. And I thought, that's a pretty cool story. I would love them to be our Latin American partner, a distribution partner for all the products and services that we've invested in for other parts of the world. Because we have, you know, almost no connections in Latin America whatsoever. And it's a it's a huge, huge untapped opportunity to improve healthcare through technology. Uh, so I asked uh, the ProColombia agent to connect me to the CEO and uh, we had a good chat and you know, I thought, uh, all right, these guys could be a really good partner. Then they mentioned that they're raising a little bit of money. And I thought, all right, let's, let's hear them out. Ask what the terms are, the valuation. Oh my God. Like I looked at the valuation and I almost had a heart attack. So I thought, wow, LATAM startups are hot. I, I hear it. I read about it, but I didn't realize it was that hot. And then and then like a split second later, I realized, hold on a second, is there a possibility that the Colombian local currency also uses the dollar sign? And then I went and, uh, you know, lo and behold, I looked at the exchange rate and uh, I thought, oh my goodness, this is a really good deal. I had better get uh, in on this. I, I spoke to my partners and, and we agreed it was a fantastic opportunity, one that was completely serendipitous and we ended up leading their round that they hadn't formally even started yet, uh, which which we now have led to a successful close. And uh, we're quite excited to see where this company is going. They are the, the top uh, telemedicine provider in Colombia. They're in several Latin American markets. They've already impacted almost a million patients. So we're, we're super excited to be working with uh, Camilo and his team at Salud Tools. Awesome. The accidental investment. I like it. And then in addition to helping them um, help finance their EMR efforts and, and telemedicine efforts, you are also possibly going to use them to act as a springboard for some of the other investments that you have. Oh, absolutely. That was the original plan before we even thought about any sort of investment discussions. We just thought, here's something that has a, a really good data foundation, a good distribution network. The founder and the team have a real strong understanding of the challenges in healthcare, both with access, affordability, and quality. And uh, they seem like a, you know, almost like kindred spirits on the other side of the planet. So we thought we'd love to work with these people. And then when we had the chance to invest in them, it was an even better story. That's great. And can their telemedicine platform be expanded across um, into other areas of the, the Latin American market? Yeah, already okay. has been. Okay. Actually. Yeah. I, would, I wouldn't have thought you would have invested if, if not. Well, that's a good start. Okay. So that gives people a little bit of a flavor of uh, some of the things you do. And so now let's go back into your career. Let's explore what gets you to where you are now, because it's an actually pretty interesting story. Let's talk about some of the early positions you had in your career and how you think they started adding up into where you are today. Yeah, so it's uh, you know it's it's nice to kind of recollect and and connect the dots as if it's a straight line from A to B, but in in fact it was quite squiggly. So you know, as a, as a kid, I was really into video games, and I, you know, I wanted to play them. Parents said if you want to play video games, you, you have to you know program them yourself, which got me started in computer programming. Oh my gosh, that's great! Yeah, so um, well, the the, the joys of uh, being from Eastern Europe is that uh, we have a certain traditional way of looking at things. The uh, epiphany that we get old and get sick led me to switch gears and look into a different kind of coding, you know, namely ACGNT, really understanding the molecular uh, code of life and trying to see if we can do something about that. Uh, so that led me to do my PhD in medical biophysics, to study my undergrad in molecular genetics. And, uh, you know, I wanted to be a scientist, wanted to spin off cool things, cures potentially, and and kind of be like some of the scientific heroes I've been reading about and, and wanted to be like. I ended up accidentally starting a medical device company during my PhD, 
as a consequence of basically looking for a, a supplement to my income, which was uh, quite modest as a graduate student, as I'm sure many graduate students can can continue to relate to this. And uh, when I finished my PhD, I, I had a choice as to whether to continue in academia, go the postdoc route, become faculty member, which increasingly, you know, had the, I guess, the laws of supply and demand uh, not favoring a good outcome for me uh, versus this startup that had a potential to really change the way we did neuroscience. So uh, I, I chose that path, learned about business, got exposed to investors, and uh, realized that I, I need to learn something about business, which led me to business school, which led me to looking for an investment job during the great financial crisis, which was quite difficult as someone who is uh, living in Canada trying to get a job in the US. Uh, so I ended up in China, of all places, uh, working for an activist hedge fund that was looking to do a life sciences VC fund a bit later. So let me ask you, let yeah. me what, let me reinforce one thing to listeners. So born and raised in Canada, right? Uh, born in Romania, um, but grew up for most of my life in Canada. So, okay. and, and ironically, I learned how to speak English and Romanian in South Korea, thanks to my my dad's work. Okay. So yeah. so much of this is taking place, your educational career, at least I should say, is taking place in Canada. And now you've gone through all this, and now you're starting to work for um, a hedge fund, you said, and that is yeah. in... So they in they positioned you in China? No, no, that's where it is. That's, uh, okay. you know, yeah, the, the founder of that, uh, the founder of the fund was a mentor of mine in business school and uh, basically asked if I could tag along and learn how to be an investor. Uh, he took me under his wing for, for half a year. The idea was, you know, we were going to start a healthcare VC fund, um, which, you know, unfortunately didn't happen. Uh, it didn't happen until 10 years later. So they did keep true to their, uh, their plans just a little bit delayed. Um, so in the meanwhile, I saw the techniques that they were doing to add value to their portfolio, which was really taken out of the management consultant toolkit. So I thought it'd be really great if I learned this in English and did nothing but healthcare. So um, moved back to Canada, you know, applied to all the consultancies I could and, and a firm uh, named Oliver Wyman uh, said yes to me. And I thought I'd do that for one or two years and ended up spending seven and a half years there. I worked in 20 different countries, did you know over 75 different engagements with predominantly pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and then I was permanently transferred to Singapore in mid-2014, so halfway through my tenure. Um, now, when I arrived to Singapore, I got to do some work in the region and Southeast Asia, like Indonesia and Malaysia and Thailand, Philippines. I did some work in China and I saw there were a lot of gaps in healthcare, a lot of challenges, a lot of people that were getting sick and dying for, for really no good reasons other than chronic underinvestment in infrastructure, human capital, and, and, and lack of awareness. And uh, thanks to basically every government pledging towards universal healthcare coverage, you now had a, I guess, a perfect storm where government was trying to promote this concept of healthcare, but the delivery of it was a little bit inadequate. So you now are starting to unlock some real latent demand in, you know, providing more accessible and affordable healthcare. And during the course of this, I met a lot of startups that were trying to do something about this, but they had a heck of a time raising money. So uh, I thought, well, I have a little bit of money thanks to moving overseas, getting promoted a few times. And I, I started angel investing. And uh, that angel investing turned out to be a whole lot more impactful and interesting and exciting than making really expensive PowerPoint slides for senior executives. And I, I, I started to look for ways to try to do this full time. So let me, <clears throat> let me ask you about the angel investing. You started off part-time while you're still working for another company, correct? Yep. Okay. And so the what is it like to be an angel investor? How do you learn about opportunities and how do you make a decision to participate at some level as an angel investor? 
Yeah, I, I wish I could give this wonderful, neatly bound answer, but it really depends. I mean, it really depends on your risk tolerance. It depends on the environment you're in. In, in my case, um, again, it started a little bit accidentally. So I was mentoring a medical device company in Canada, and it was a young founder, female founder, wanted to look at something in women's health. And, uh, you know, after a couple of years of mentoring, when I moved to Singapore, she said, hey, I'm raising a round. Do you, do you want to invest? And I thought, well, you know, you're my mentee. Sure. Why not? And that got me started with things. You know, I was familiar with the concept of investing intellectually from my time at the fund, um, even though it was completely different, we were investing in foreign listed public companies, whereas this was really private, uh, private equity deals. And by private equity, I don't mean the class, but literally just non-public shares, private mm-hmm. shares uh, for purchase. And uh, started really reading up on it. I joined an angel investing organization here in Singapore called Bansi, which is the Business Angel Network of Southeast Asia. Met fellow angel investors. Uh, it also helped that some of the people I was working with at Oliver Wyman were also angel investors. So we just learned from each other. But it got to a point where I found a company. I was the very first you know, person looking to be an investor in that company. And so I learned how to lead deals as well. And after I did that a couple of times, and after I saw enough lives being impacted and enough, um, I guess, paper gains in the portfolio, I became confident to say that, you know, I think I can do this full time. And the next question came, well, is there a fund that is investing globally in, in these important accessible healthcare technologies that I could join. And I couldn't find any, which therefore meant I had to start one. And this was a a slight moment of irresponsibility in that (laughs) I I basically quit my job without knowing how to be a VC or raise money or anything. But I I managed to, you know, stubbornly persist long enough that we, you know, it worked. I mean, we, that, and that was really the genesis of Verge Health Tech Fund. And that was your first fund that you created. And um, tell me what it was like as an angel investor to be, let's go back where you found yourself leading around. So in that particular case, does that mean that you were the first one that became aware of the particular uh, technology and then you went out and gathered a few more angels to come in with you? Is that what you mean? I think I think the first investor in which the, you know, the founder and I saw eye to eye to a point where we agreed on terms to proceed with such a round, but that's exactly it. Basically, I called, I called some friends, and uh, they called a couple of their friends, and uh, before we knew it, we we had a reasonably sized first round of capital coming together. And then it's a matter of getting the paperwork, you know, the shareholders agreement, the share subscription agreement, making sure the terms all make sense, making sure the money's all coming in on time, all the, you know, registers updated and all that, you know, administrative work and making sure that's done properly. Okay. Okay. And so that worked out well, and that started giving you this idea that maybe you should have your own complete organization and fund that's the result of that organization. Yeah. Okay. And that was your first fund. What did you, was there a name for that fund or? Yeah, we called it Verge Health Tech Fund One. And, okay. And, and it is our only fund right now. We've, uh, we've come towards the end of the investment cycle and we are starting a second one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, I think we'll launch it officially in April, but so far that's really it. So this single fund, we've, we've used it to invest in 14 companies across, you know, five continents. And do now that's amazing across five continents, because that's something that you don't see a lot of funds do, at least my experience. I don't know if that's yours. You're much more experienced at this than I am. But a lot of times they want to invest in something that is either regionally um, close to them, so they have, really have an eye on it, or it's in a particular uh, one particular large market, let's say the U.S. or it's in Europe. 
or they might venture and do like a U.S. firm may venture into Europe, but you don't see a lot of this five continents stuff. How do you manage that? How do you um, feel like you've got a good handle on this wide array of uh, geographic array, array of investments? Yeah, it's uh, it's not easy, that's for sure. But I think it suits it suits my personality quite a bit, considering I've basically been traveling nonstop for the past twelve years. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, we can't do these things alone. We like to co-invest with uh, local investors on the ground. We also have a tendency to redomicile companies to places where there's a more predictable set of rules around how you know companies are treated how intellectual property is treated so singapore for example is a really good place where we like to redomicile companies estonia is another good place delaware is a great mm -hmm. place so that that company i mentioned in colombia well we we flipped it to delaware because it's a heck of a lot easier to you know do things in english and delaware law than it is to deal with a whole new legal system we're less familiar with have good lawyers on the ground in these countries. That's helpful. And if your investment partners are on the ground as well and you trust them and you've worked with them before, then it's uh, it's making life a little bit easier in that respect. But I think the pandemic has really taught us that it doesn't matter where they are. I mean, you know, if we were in full lockdown mode, you could have been my neighbor and we'd still have to Zoom. Yeah, exactly. And when you say redomicile, so let's use the Colombian investment as a good example, which was the story we started this um, uh, program out with. Even though you read domicile to Delaware, it's not like you have the company headquarters and all this personnel there. It's more of a legal structure is there, but really all the key players could still be in Colombia at an office there. Correct. Yep. That's exactly it. Okay. Okay. All right. Great. So how did, you know, you got into this first fund, was there any time when you started Verge uh, Health Tech that you thought that you were you're scared or worried, or did you feel like you, you just got a role going and you saw pretty quickly that this is going to succeed? Uh, I'm still scared. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, like every, Why every are you still scared? Because when you think about all the different things that can go wrong, it vastly outweighs, you know, everything that can go right. And it's by a sheer fluke of nature that everything is still alive, you know, knock on wood. I mean, we are investing at quite possibly the riskiest stage of a company, investing in a risky asset class, investing in risky geographies. I mean, we have hardware, the word hard is in there. Uh, we're impact focused, which means we don't just look for financial returns. I mean, never done this before. First time, you know, fund manager. So there, there are so many ways this can go wrong that, you know, there is, there is a lot of fear involved with this. Um, at the same time, if I look at who invested in our fund, they're all friends and colleagues. You know, every dollar has a face. So the pressure to deploy that wisely and to not make mistakes and not make the wrong choice is, is immense. So I'm afraid of letting them down. I'm afraid of making the wrong decisions. Um, sometimes even have anxiety around if my capital led to this startup being funded and this journey grows and it's a five-year journey and they fail, is that worse than having the startup not receive funding died before you know the finish line and the founder goes back and, and makes a lucrative career for five years right so there is a lot of reasons to be afraid now on the other hand there's also a lot of reasons to be really hopeful the fact that we've impacted over 2.2 million lives just with our fund one investments that can't be taken away whether the companies live or die those people have been impacted right what, so like in your first fund do you mind saying how many dollars that fund is worth Oh, it's a small one. It's 7.6 million USD. Okay. So your first fund out of the blocks, 7.6 million, um, that's split up between 14 companies. Um, and when you make these, like when you look at a, a span of, let's just say 10 companies, let's say the fund was 10 companies, not 14. That way we can get into 
percentages a little bit more easily. Do you have an expectation as to what percentage um, you're going to be successful at? I mean, I know you want to be 100%, but that's not what these funds are about. There's a little bit of a gamble, like you said, things to be scared of. Yeah, I think that if we finish with two thirds of the companies being alive at the end of the fund, I'd be pretty happy. That's Um, awesome. I think our internal failure rate scenario is around 50%. Now, the thing is failure is returning zero to one X and success is returning greater than one X. Um, you know, we could go into all the the nuances of portfolio construction theory and how everyone makes an investment into a company expecting that it returns the entire fund and then some really swinging for the fences and really looking for those, you know, uh, outliers. Uh, we are um, a little bit different in that we take more of a balanced approach in that we invest in solid companies that want to solve real problems. So maybe we are a little bit less imaginative about, you know, hitting the moon and all that sort of stuff. But um, we do hope as a consequence, more of our companies will be successful to a certain degree. Right. And we talked about the fact that, you know, and you've reinforced this fact that you're looking for something that has impact beyond just profits, that it has a societal beneficial impact. Is that a hard sell to investors, even if they're friends of yours that have seen you succeed and see you do great things throughout your career? Is it is this a hard sell in your first fund? Um, to be honest, uh, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, right? There are investors who are solely after financial returns and investing in a healthcare fund is not necessarily going to give that unless it's, you know, a life sciences fund and you've picked all the right winners and you've managed to get those thousand X's because it, it you've, you've just had a, a winning jackpot multiple times or you had enough control of the process that you're able to venture create enough successful biotech companies to, to keep doing this. And there have been some very good ones like flagship and, and, um, third rock and such that are just really consistently good at that. Ironically, we don't really have too many impact investors on our cap table is more people that were in the industry already. So there could have been some strategic value for them as well as those who are interested in the space and maybe mm-hmm. interested in also helping improve health systems. Okay. Now, okay. So let's go back the the first fund. You said 7.5, 7.6 million. Now you're not far from completing the raise for the second fund. And so let me get oh, this. No, no, we, we just to correct you that, sorry, oh. um, there is uh no, we haven't started yet. We're, oh, we're okay. launching, we're probably launching it in April. Oh, you're going to launch it in April. Okay. All right. Yeah. Got it. How long? That, that would take? be amazing if we were almost done. <laughs> right. Okay. So if you're launching the fund in April, how long does it take to, uh, <clears throat> gather all the participants and fill out the fund. What is your goal for that fund? We're looking for uh, perhaps doing it all in 12 to 18 months. Uh, whether that is realistic, I think the market will tell us pretty quickly. Okay. And can you say what size you hope the fund will be? Um, we're still debating that internally right now. Okay. But it's going to be one thing because you and I did talk about that before, and I don't want you to reveal things that you shouldn't be revealing, especially if you're just launching in April. But the impression I get is your hope is it's substantially larger than this the first fund that you did. Absolutely. Because the okay. first fund was an experiment. We, we wanted to see whether it is actually possible to do something like this um, with pretty high autonomy, um, pretty low operating budget. And to see whether, you know, we're actually able to make a difference. And now it's a matter of taking what we learned from this first fund experience and, you know, applying it to kind of a a much larger way to kind of scale a bit. Yeah, that's what I call a success model. Create a success model, learn from it, and then be able to move on from there and hopefully do better the second time around, uh, bigger and better. So when you... Can you refer people to your first fund to give them an example of this is you know what we've done before? We just want to make it larger. Do you want to participate? Can you do that? 
Yeah, yeah, we 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 absolutely we absolutely can. You know, when you do talk to potential fund investors, the first question they're going to ask is, "What's your track record?" Yeah. And so when we were raising our first fund, that was a very difficult question to answer because we had, you know, a handful of angel investments which, you know, didn't really have a mandated thesis. It just happened that they were pretty consistent in the kinds of things we were looking for with the fund we were trying to raise, but you know, there wasn't any guarantee or mandate of that. There wasn't any discipline around it because it was all personal money. So, you know, I could say like, I like the fact that you like green shirts, therefore I will give you some money mm-hmm. versus, you know, your, your product and service makes a lot of sense. You're, you seem to be resilient and mission driven and you seem to have a pretty complete team. It could literally, you know, be a pretty random factor. And I've even heard a lot of, um, investors who've done really, really well say that they're much more disciplined and actually perform better when they're managing other people's money than when they're managing their own, which is, yeah, I can kind of see that now. Sure. Sure. So one of the things we talked about early on was this focus on societal impact. We talked about the fact that most of these investments have what we would call in the United States, a value-based care type of component to them. Um, the other thing we talked about was artificial intelligence. Can you give us an example from your first fund of uh, one of these technologies that you invested in and and how it impacts uh, the value-based uh, care patients may get in the end? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll be tangible, and this happens to be sitting on my desk, and this, uh-huh. is, a, this is a simple, you know, IoT device. It's a, what I think to this day is still the most affordable, most intelligent digital stethoscope out there. Okay. And, let me just tell, let me tell the listeners yeah. that don't get to see the video. Um, what he is holding up is something that looks like a white hockey puck. You know, it's a little cooler looking than that, but anyway, that's the size of it. Like, so go ahead, keep talking. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. So if you've got this at home or if you've got this in the GP's office, there's different use cases by which you can institute value-based care. The very clear one is avoid admissions or avoid readmissions, right? Mm-hmm. So for example, if you are, let's just take COPD, right? Um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. If you can detect an exacerbation a few days in advance of where you normally would, you can then try to manage that really well to avoid having the actual exacerbation take place. There are many ways that you can do this um, out there. This could be just one way to do it. But if you can save a trip to the hospital, that is going to save a ton of money. That's going to create a ton of value in the system. And if you're getting paid or getting reimbursed based on you know episodes or penalized based on readmissions, depending on which health system you're in, that can actually be very, very lucrative um, for for your health system. Uh, now, if you're a central payer, this saves you know potentially millions, if not billions, depending on the size of your country, of taxpayer dollars. Wow. That's one way to do it. Now, the way this works, which addresses the AI part, is that um, instead of relying on a physician's ears, which uh, which are quite subjective, they might be very good. Well, they might not be very good. And the kind of tragedy of it all is when you're really young and your sense of hearing is quite good, provided you haven't uh, you know, worn <laughs> your, your earphones for too long, um, you don't have the experience. Whereas when you have the experience, you know, 40 years of practicing medicine, doing long auscultations, you might not have the ears anymore. So what this does, it allows you to then determine what kind of sound you're listening to based on what we think is the, the the most how shall I say the most properly trained neural net on the planet because they basically used sounds that were annotated by classical music trained pulmonologists. Wow. That you combine the brains and the ears to get the highest quality training data possible. And so it will tell you what kind of sound it's likely to be with a mid-90s accuracy. On top of this, you can listen to the audio clip if you want. You can change the volume, you can change the speed. The other thing you can do is also you can turn it into a visualization. 
you can do a frequency time plot and tells you um, using the power of your eyes, which are far more powerful than your ears, um, whether there's a fingerprint that looks like it's a wheeze or a ronchi or a, or a crackle or an artifact. And this, where is this technology from? It's actually from Belarus. Ah. And here's an example of where moving it to a safer country yeah. would, uh, you know, uh, benefited the team. And we moved it to Estonia. Okay. Okay. So it was invented in Belarus. And um, has it been deployed anywhere? I mean, is it actually in use in any particular country or location? Yeah, it's it's in use in Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, and okay. they just got the FDA exemption to uh, start selling to physicians in the U.S. and they'll go from awesome. their five ten k later this year. Hopefully, by the end of Q two, we might have a five ten k. Wow, that's terrific! And so, if so, let's say you get to your five ten k in the United States, do you have to build a U.S. team to help launch it and move it forward? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the U.S. is the largest market on the planet. It is very difficult, very, very specific, very nuanced, and you can't you can't enter it remotely. I mean, it's right. that that'd be a little bit crazy. So we are okay, we so are looking to build a U.S. team in progress right now. Okay, so this is a a good question, a good example. So you've helped fund this company to get them to where they are now. And I would imagine that um, they are, although they're getting revenues from some countries as well. So they are getting their, they have some orga- organic funding going on. Do you need to raise another round to move into Europe or move into the United States? Absolutely to move into the United States. So they are in Europe right now, but because the medical certification process across the EU has had untold delays because of the shift from MDD to MDR. Yeah. Actually, the U.S. is the default go-to market now for all these startups, right? Regardless of where they're located in the world, because you know the FDA is a, a great uh, predicate that a lot of other countries' regulatory bodies look for as as uh, as kind of uh, pre-validated proof. It's an amazing turn of events. Like it, it's like a total reversal in what five years? Yeah, going from Europe being first, and then now it's the U.S. being first again. Okay. So uh, does that mean that you try to use your next fund to help them or do you just um, act as a lead and you go out and find other serious people that come in as a A or B round or C round? I think it really depends on timing. So with with this company, if they continue to do well and there's an opportunity for our second fund to participate, why wouldn't we, right? Right. We already know them really well. We, we invested them in 2019. We've been on this journey together. It'd be great to bring a bit more firepower to this journey as well. Uh, but in the meanwhile, because we haven't even started yet, but these folks need funding to enter the US, we are helping them with uh, you know looking for new investors. Okay. And just to help me understand how funds work, when you launch this new fund, um, and let's say you want to have it you know, closed out within 12 months, but early on, let's you launch it in April and somebody raises their hand and says, here's 5 million bucks. I believe in what you're doing. And I want to have a $5 million share in this new fund that you have. And then somebody else comes along another person. So let's say by, but like, let's say by July, you had $15 million, but you're, let's say you're still wanting to make it bigger than that. And so you're still working at it. Can you go ahead and employ those funds that you have early on, or are you or are you required to wait for the fund to be complete? Oh, that's a really good question, and uh, the answer is, in fact, you can start uh, okay. deploying capital. It's what's typically called a close. So every time you have a, a window of opportunity to get commitments, then you can close that window and say, "All right, um, we're going to do a close. Let's call the capital that's being committed so far." or a portion of it usually, and they'll start deploying. And then you have tend to have multiple closes over the course of your fundraising journey. Now, there are different, you know, without getting into too many details, there are different philosophies around how many closes to have, whether you have a single close, two closes, 10 closes, you know, there, you can probably find as many, you know, hypotheses 
around what's the most optimal way than that to your heart's content. Um, I think it really depends on the momentum of your fundraise, depends on the sector, whether it's an exciting one or not, depends on your track record, depends on a whole bunch of different factors. Now, the other thing is also you may have an opportunity to raise the entry part, entry price between closes. Because let's say you invest in something now and between you know the first close and the second close, let's say that company goes up five times in value. Is it really five times in value? Have you received the money for that? No, it's a paper gain, but still it looks really good. So how would your first investor feel if you offered the second investor the same price that you offered the first investor? You're right. Right. So sometimes between closes, funds will charge an interest rate or okay. a catch-up fee, or if they're really aggressive, they'll mark it, they'll mark to market. So if okay. your your net asset value of the portfolio is now, you know. 1.5x, then instead of $1,000 a share, maybe it's $1,500 a share for the second close. But that's pretty extreme. I have not heard of that being done very often at all. Okay. Okay. Excellent. And do you mind saying what the uh, end user price for your um, stethoscope is approximately? Yeah, honestly, we haven't quite figured this out in the US, but if I were to hazard a guess, it might be, I don't know, 60 to $80. Oh my gosh. So really, uh, the reason I asked that is because um, I interviewed um, the popula- the VP of Population Health for Northwell, <clears throat> which is a huge system out in the New York City area, hospital system, very forward thinking, very value-based care, population health-based. And uh, they actually, in fact, I, I'm sure I saw something where they have collaborated with a fund or not with a, like with an incubator to help create products that enhance value-based care, but I could see, I could see the, um, I could see a hospital system being the customer as opposed to patients or as opposed to doctors and physicians, the hospital system saying we need a thousand of these to deploy to people we've already identified that are predisposed to have this particular issue. And we want them to have this at their house so we can tell them or, you know, a telehealth nurse can call them every week and say, I want you to put this on your chest or whatever, or every day. Um, mm. could be email. Who knows? Yeah. Okay. That that's pretty exciting. Um, let's see another, another example that you had that, uh, was really good was this retispec detection of neurodegenerative diseases through the eye using artificial intelligence. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, n- not a lot of people know that your eyeballs are, are bits of your brain that are sticking out and touching the world. Mm-hmm. So if you look at a developing, you know, fetus, you'll you'll actually see the eyeballs grow out of the brain during the course of its development. They also say that the eyes are the windows to the soul. Um, maybe, but it's certainly a window to your brain. So uh, if you look at you know, your retina, you, you've got a bunch of neurons or, you know, that are collecting light and transmitting the signal to your brain. So if you have accumulation of things that ought not to be there, like beta amyloid plaques and tau, it'll reflect on your retina. And that's what this company has focused its efforts on doing. And their clinical data to date suggests that they can identify asymptomatic beta amyloid positive Alzheimer's patients, which is enormous. Huge. It means you can identify these patients early enough that you can probably do something about the disease to either radically delay its progression or prevent it altogether. Because by the time you have symptoms, you have had catastrophic brain damage. Right. And the only way to recover from that is grow more brain and I'm not sure we quite know how to do that yet. No, we don't. <laughs> no. So, and, and then the other challenge with clinical development is that's your patient pool that you're recruiting from. You're, you're, you're largely recruiting from these people that are symptomatic. Even if it's early disease, they've got a ton of brain damage. So is it any surprise why the clinical trials don't do that well? Right, exactly. 
yeah, my wife frequently tells me that she wish I could grow more brain, but um, <laughs> you and I both. Then. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, and where is this? Where is this technology out of? It's out of Toronto, um, but okay. the core IP was was co developed with the University of Minnesota. Okay, wow, that's exciting. Yeah, I spent a lot of time in ophthalmology, so yeah, very familiar with the fact that the eyes are part of the brain, and it's a great way to measure a lot of functional attributes, or you know, via the eyes and so on. So that's um, sixty diseases. Sixty diseases. Yeah, that's it's amazing. Crazy. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, that's a great one. And now, how long does it do you think it takes for you to be able to get that to a place where you can start looking at like clinical trials, or are you already in them, or already there? there so okay, yeah, yeah. So they're they're part of the global Alzheimer's platform, okay, which is uh, a collection of clinical trial sites that are trying to really, really characterize Alzheimer's patients really well based on you know PET scans. Maybe I'm not sure if they have MRIs as well, but definitely PET scans. Uh, you know, sp- spinal fluid taps, blood work, and uh, it's being used as a platform to help both diagnostics and therapeutics. So they're 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 already there. Their clinical trials with GAP. You know they have clinical trials with Sheba in Israel. They have uh, clinical trials with Toronto Memory Program and probably a few other places I'm forgetting about. They were our very first investment in October 2018 as a fund. So they've they've gotten a little further than you know some of the companies where we just invested you know last year. So. Well, that's very exciting. And when you give examples like the two that we've talked about, and we can't, we don't have time to go into all your investments. But when you give examples like that, it, it really does give you a hope that technology can help us overcome some of these healthcare burdens that we have and the cost of them. So let's let's move into um, the area of leadership. And you know, what was it like? How, how difficult was it like in the first fund to put a team together? that was effective? Uh, I, I hate to say it. It was pretty easy. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, so basically when I, before I decided to start the fund, I wanted to make sure I had the competencies that could at least be, make me feel somewhat remotely comfortable to actually go ahead with this. I, I basically picked the two most obvious choices. Uh, number one being my wife, who's a hardware expert. Mm-hmm. And found our most successful angel investment from South Africa, at least most successful to date. And then the second partner was actually a company I had invested in. And they were Taiwan's most successful digital health startup. They have they are now managing over 735,000 diabetics across predominantly Taiwan and Japan. The founder is a serial entrepreneur former investment banker, several exits under his belt. He's done things I haven't. So I managed to convince him and his board to uh, share some of his time with us. And, you know, I've been an investor in that company since, you know, 2015 myself and have been advising its journey going from, say, a hardware only company to a data company, to a disease management company, to a digital therapeutic. Wow. Okay. Awesome. And um, uh, we got this question I, and, and we can edit this out or you don't have to disclose it, but w- can you disclose the name of the South African angel investor or is that? Um, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's fine. So the South African company that we, we discovered quite early was uh, actually we're the very first investor in this company. It's called Herex. Okay. Interesting. And they do digital hearing and screening tools um, to you know, allow audiologists or even even perhaps remove the audiologist from diagnosing, you know, the, the state of a person's hearing. And during COVID, this made a really big difference. If you're in a place where you don't have a $10,000 bit of machinery and a soundproof room, this can make a huge difference. It's literally just a calibrated headset and a tablet or even, a, or even just an Android phone. And they have actually successfully launched in the US with a D2C high quality, highly affordable hearing aid called uh, Lexi. So if you go to lexihearing.com, you'll actually see this product in action. And that's a long journey from 
you know, helping, you know, school kids in rural communities in, in South Africa and in right. other sub-Saharan African countries. And so these people did participate in your, uh, or as a advisor and or a participant in your first fund. Uh, so these folks in South Africa, no, they were purely an angel investment that we okay. uh, we actually, you know, served as inspiration for for me to actually go and start this and to do this full time. Just Got seeing it. their success, seeing the impact they had, that was really a, a huge motivator. Um, and you know, and my wife was angel investing with me. You know, when I was working full time uh, at Oliver Wyman, I didn't have time to go to all these technology conferences around the world, so I sent her. Okay, great. So we already started working together, uh, you know, far before even the, the fund happened. And similarly with with Ed, my other partner for Fund One. Okay. What kind of challenges do you have in like you, this was this was sort of easy, but as you grow and as you you know need to ramp up and scale up your particular organization, especially to create a larger fund, evaluate more technologies and so on and so forth. You know, what are the challenges in scaling up for that? I think the number one challenge is ensuring that we have clarity of vision and purpose and that everyone on the team is working towards the same goal. I think that we've been quite lucky with that so far, but there's no way to actually know this until you're in the trenches together and you're you're going through some difficult things. I have no illusions around the fact that we're going to disagree. We're going to disagree a lot. And in fact, that's a really good thing because the last thing you want is tunnel vision and, and having, you know, a, a bunch of yes people circling around you, you know, affirming whatever bad decisions you might be making. So I think as long as we have alignment of vision, values, and purpose, we should be okay. Um, finding people that'll put in the work that, you know, want this as badly as, as the rest of us, that's, you know, that's going to be a challenge. Again, I think we, we, we might be quite lucky here, um, but we'll see. And I, I, the thing is, I'm not worried so much about this immediate round. I'm worried about 10 years from now or 20 years from now. What is this fund management firm going to look like? You know, Will it survive? Will it be a successful asset management firm? Will we still be doing healthcare? Will we still doing venture capital? Will we still exist? Will we have the same values? Will we still have the same mission? Will we lose sight? Will we forget? Will we grow complacent? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're worried about that now, I've got a feeling that you probably won't have that many problems. Uh, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, because if, if you're worried about it, then you then you tend to think about it. You tend to share that with your colleagues and you start planning for the future if you take that time to do it. And will there be things to invest in? Sure, because we haven't gotten quite to, I know you're, um, you're a, a science fiction fan. We haven't quite got to the Star Trek um, tricorder yet, right? Uh, or what, is that a tricorder? The tricorder is what they use to communicate. What was it? No, no, that? Tricorder is it. No, no, tricorder is the medical device, the okay. communicators, the, the thing that the you know Motorola flip phone was kind of based after in the right. old series. No, the tricorder okay. is there. Now, one thing I think Star Trek got a little bit different than what probably ought to be the case is the tricorder is measuring you at a point of time, like something happened to you. And it's like, oh crap, we need to figure out what happened. Let's, let's run this uh, tricorder scan on you and uh, let's see what the issue is. But the thing is a problem has already happened. So how do we make it more like, uh, I'm trying to think of a good science fiction analogy, analogy, but I'm blanking on it right now, but something that monitors you continuously Something that lets you know, and, and you know, a crude analogy of this would be the, the warning lights in your dashboard in your car, that something's not right, you got to intervene right now, or else something bad's going to happen. Well, in the expanse, because what's-his-name had the radiation poisoning from um, uh, the protomolecule, yeah. Doesn't he isn't he wearing something all the time that sort of tells him that he needs to go back to the bay and get right some type right, of right. radioactive processing? Right. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing. So how do you do that for all the things that matter in your body? Right. Okay. So for listeners, I hope you guys can put up with our little dive into science fiction, but it's a lot of it's a lot of fun. And also the book of Boba Fett. He's got that tank that he's getting healed. Back in. to tank. The yeah. back to tank. That's right. Okay. So um, uh, 
a couple other questions. How are we doing? Do we have another minute or two? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. How would you describe leadership success? And I'm not thinking in terms of you and your organization. I'm thinking in terms of the uh, companies that you look at and that you are getting ready to invest in. Because obviously you, you mentioned earlier, leadership and a good team is an important you know, element to what you're trying to, what you're investing in. Yeah. Um, I'm looking for a few things. The first thing I'm looking for is the mo- underlying motivations for mm-hmm. that leader. Like, why are you doing this? Are you doing this because it's a cause you believe in or it's a cause of opportunity? So are you a missionary? Are you a mercenary? Um, second thing we try to look for is overcoming adversity, resilience, grit, um, confidence, pragmatism. We look for complementary skill sets across the team. You know, we look for clinical, commercial, and technical expertise and experience. Can't always have that, but we try to do our best to find that. We look for leaders that are coachable, have a sense of humility that they're, you know, they might not know the right answer all the time and they're willing to listen. Um, but it's really hard because I've just listed a whole bunch of things that, you know, you, you ideally have in a person and you'll never get a hundred percent. So then the question is, well, where do you draw the line? And is there a parameter that's more important than another parameter? And I, and I don't really know the answer to that yet. I mean, we have hypotheses and we weigh it accordingly, but we won't know until the story's over. Did be do you, like when you're evaluating that, do you have a process that you, yeah. or let's say like a, a checklist, like almost like a piece of paper or a document online and you're, and you're saying, okay, this is Joe Blow, CEO, key founder of this, co-founder of this company. How does he, how does he fit in these checkboxes? We do, but it's not something that will make or break a decision. Okay. I think it will have greater utility in postmortem when we have enough data points so we can go back and say, hey, what did we think of this? Were we right? Mm-hmm. And what, or what, 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 could we do some retroactive and retrospective analysis on what factors were correlated with success? And unfortunately, until we have like 50 or 100 companies, it's going to be really difficult. Right. And then you have that strange balance between mercenary and missionary. Yeah, possibly. I mean, maybe if they're too much missionary, then they'll go down the ship and not realize they could have done something more opportunistic that would have kept things alive or made their lives easier. If right. they're too mercenary, then you know they'll quit when they see the next shiny object. Sure, absolutely. Can you describe a failure, a leadership failure, and why there was a failure? And you don't have to name names or a company or anything like that, but and it doesn't even have to be in the fund that you completed, your 14 companies. It could be something in your past, but can you describe what you see as leadership failure and maybe a couple of the reasons behind it? I think overconfidence. I think that's that's really it. Like thinking that you know all the answers without necessarily stopping, reassessing, asking for feedback and seeing whether in fact you're on the right track. A certain degree of stubbornness is definitely warranted. You know, they say if like if you have an open mind that's too open, your brain falls out sort of thing. <laughs> I've not heard that. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but you do have to be able to adapt to changing circumstances and recognize when, you know, you might be wrong. Okay. And so that would be related to uh, that um, uh, overconfidence could be related to the way you deal with things internally in the company and then also the way you view the market that you're trying to address. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I, I interviewed, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this lady, Stephanie Maris. Uh, she's with the University of California, San Francisco Entrepreneurship Program, and she has an entrepreneurship course she had to get you to teach one of the sections of the course. It's a really popular, highly regarded course, and it 
typically in, uh, a lot of the people that attend are physicians in the Bay Area that are trying to learn how to be an entrepreneur, what it takes. And she talked about how frequent it was. Now, this is maybe before you get involved with a company, but how frequently people would have to pivot on their plans um, that they were developing throughout the course and that they'd have to pivot in terms of market objectives, maybe the way the technology was designed and so on. Do you see that very often in your investments? The, the, the need to pivot and the need for a leader to see the reasons to pivot. Yeah, I, I would say that a lot of the pivoting happens in the, I guess, the solution discovery phase. And we okay. tend to come in just after they have a validated hypothesis as to why they want to do what they want to do. And that it's one of the sense. things we actually look for. Yeah, you know, that, make, that makes you, a lot of sense. Yeah. However, there are pivots. You know, you might have chosen the right disease area. You might have chosen the right technology. You might have chosen the wrong team. You might have mm -hmm. chosen the wrong distribution channel. You might have chosen the wrong business model or even the wrong price. So those are things that, you know, companies have had to and will continue to have to adapt. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. So there's there's lots of different pivots, lots of ways you can define them. Um, any, what, what advice do you have for other like C-suite leaders that are looking at a long development timeline and trying to build their startup? That's a big question. Yeah. And the reason I ask that is because we frequently see um, uh, technology can take sometimes Sometimes they're lucky. So like I'll be interviewing um, uh, the co-founder of Viz AI, and they went from company foundation to FDA clearance like in, I think it was two years, um, with an AI-related type of product for stroke. And it's a great story. I'll be interviewing him, I think, next or a couple Mondays from now. No, next, next Monday. But then you have others that take you know, like four, five, 10 years before the technology has all the data it needs, has gone through some of several pivots, but then it can be quite good and quite successful. Yeah. I think maybe if there is one bit of advice, generally speaking, is can you be honest with yourself to understand why there is a potential setback mm -hmm. or why things proceeded the way they did? both with successes and with delays. I mean, can you really objectively look at that journey and understand what actually happened, what was in your control, what was not in your control, what you could have done differently, and what might have been the consequences of doing things differently? And then understand that if this, if this is something that keeps happening, maybe in the wrong direction, and systemically, is it me? Or is it the world? Okay. Okay. You know, what should prospective leaders of startups, you know, people that are thinking about it and or people that are currently in the fight to create something, they're halfway through, what, is there anything they should be reading or studying to help them be um, better leaders as they try to, you know, create a startup and succeed? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to make a plug for um, a, a book I, I, I really quite enjoyed reading recently. And it was actually recommended by one of our investors and it's called Traction by Gino Wickman. Okay. And it's, how do I, how do I summarize it really quickly? I think it is an operating system for entrepreneurs to create a very crisply defined organization that has that clarity of vision and purpose, as well as quantifiable accountability for everyone in it. That's perfect. That's that's great. And I and everybody's used to the fact that I'll I'll find like the Amazon or some type of link to that book and put it in the show notes. Excellent. Any other final comments or thoughts for uh, the listeners, whether they are a a salesperson out in the field, or if they are 
an aspiring uh, C-suite founder, co-founder? I think that the past couple of years have really given us an opportunity to stop and reflect as to what is important in life and what change, hopefully positive, you'd like to have on the world. And then every single day going forward, you know, to ask yourself, how am I getting towards that positive change? Um, healthcare is super broken pretty much wherever you are living right now in some way. Mm-hmm. And what would the world look like if it wasn't? Excellent. That's a great question. Something that we all have to work with, <laughs> you know? Um, okay. Well, Joseph, thank you so much for taking time. It, this was really great. This was a lot of fun. We learned a lot and um, with a really different kind of leader yourself and also a different kind of um, healthcare fund. Well, thanks so much, Ted, for giving me the opportunity to share some of the lessons I've been fortunate enough to have experienced already and hopefully many more to come. Are you inspired? I am. With leaders like Joseph and his team, we just may make progress towards fixing this broken healthcare system we live with. I wish Joseph and his team the best as they begin their new fund, and I look forward to catching up with him again in a year or so to see just how Verge Health Tech is doing. Thank you for spending time with Joseph and me today. God bless the Ukraine. Now go win your week.